Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the eighth guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is with contemporary artist Ingrid Burton Moyne, who is exhibiting in our group show entitled Try a Little Tenderness, which opened on the 4th of February in Liminal Gallery. Ingrid Burton Moyne's work flops, wobbles, exposes, and bleeds across sculpture, drawing, photography, installation, and video. There is a playfulness in her approach, which on the surface may seem as simple as tits and balls. But in reality, her use of humour is a tool to ask much deeper questions about ingrained forms of misogyny within both personal and political spheres. Sexual organs are reduced to ridiculous standalone flaccid objects, their prominence and power stripped as they are left to fend for themselves in landscapes of Birth and Moyne's creation. This questions the importance we place on them, forever poking fun at our ridiculous societal values. As part of her broader practice, Ingrid also has an ongoing project, I Lack It, I Like It, where she interviews women in the art world, starting from the point of a perceived lack and how they have enjoyed or overcome this obstacle. It was created in response to Freud's ridiculous theory of penis envy. Bertha Moyne completed her MA in photography at London College of Communication in 2009 and her MA in fine art at Goldsmiths University in 2017. Recent solo exhibitions include It's Getting Closer at Fitzrovia Gallery in London in 2022 and New Terrace at Kelder Projects London in 2018. She was awarded the Fitzrovia Gallery Residency in London 2022, shortlisted for the Mark Tanner Award in 2021 and was a finalist for the Ingram Prize and the residency winner of the Barbican Trust in 2019. Her work is in a number of impressive collections, including Birthrights Collection, British Museum, Jeremy Cooper Postcard Collection and the National for Irish Visual Arts Library. Ingrid Berthamoyne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Louise, after this very great presentation of me. I'm blushing now. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. You. <laughs> so my first question, I found this really great quote 
from you on Instagram, which I'd like to start with. You said, my practice finds its source in the gendered structure of the French language. During the 17th century, it was decided that the male gender, being the more noble, must predominate every time that the masculine and feminine are located together. As a consequence, my work examines the construction and deconstruction of gender identity and its behavioural consequences in our society. Gender constructs permeates our cultures throughout the globe, and I think it's such an interesting topic to call out. Have you always been interested in this, and when did it start coming into your artwork? Yes, I mean, I remember I also said that it's a question of nobility. And when I was writing nobility in English, I was writing with nob, K-N-O-B, <laughs> like yeah. nobility. Uh, yes, I mean, it's always been ingrained in my practice, you know, and since I started making work, I mean, I started with exploring the female body at the beginning, especially when I was doing photography. There was a lot to do with that and also with the blood, menstrual blood. I did a series of photographs of women wearing their menstrual blood on their lips. And uh, also I was playing guitar with my tampon string on Slave to the Rhythm by Grace Jones. <laughs> so, you know, it was started like that. I really needed to deal with this kind of the female body, the, with all that. So, so yes. And, and after, so when I went back to study, because I was working before, I went back to study within the first two or three months of going back, I felt pregnant. So like making art and being pregnant at the same time was really interesting. And uh, and I've always followed the same kind of rhythm with my daughter, you know, uh, when she was starting a new school, I was going to a new school or I was finishing, like for example, when she was at nursery, I think I, I was finishing at the LCC, my main photography. After when I finished Goldsmith, she was moving to secondary school. So we've had this rhythm. So it's been, it's been quite interesting. And yeah, so gender identity, yes, has always been in my work. And it still is, you know, I think it will always be. Yeah, and to go back to the, the language, the French language is just, you know, when you, when you learn to write or speak or read the language and you are always being told that the masculine is always stronger than the feminine, I think in a little girl, it ingrains a sense of inferiority, which stays with you because you don't realize, but you repeat the, this grammatical rule. Oh, well, the masculine l'emporte sur le féminin toujours. You're like, mm, okay. And it's a shame because I think language always evolves. You know, the French language hasn't always been like that. Language always evolves. So there is a space for, uh, for changing this, hopefully. That's how I look at it, yeah. Do you think it will ever change? Uh, I guess you have to fight really hard. You know, now they're talking about, because, you know, in French, everything has, um, has a gender. You know, a chair is female. I mean, maybe it's the same in, in Italian, you know. Uh, a tree is masculine. A castle is masculine. So, you know, it's a bit complicated to make things move. And there are some people who, are, who really like to keep this privilege. And under the idea of defending the this, the, the French language, I think there's space for evolution. You know, every year we add new words of vocabulary to the dictionary, you know, so why not be a bit more flexible with language and giving options you can choose. That's my, I don't know how it is at school or because I have been here in the UK for a long time. 
So I don't really know what's been going on in, in the schools, but somewhere, somehow, I was quite kind of happy that my daughter, she went to an English school, that she did enough to, to learn this rule, somehow. I was kind of, oof, at least there's something which she has escaped. <laughs> yeah, I never really so, thought about it, but you're right. If you grow yeah. up learning that the masculine always dominates, then what does that tell you about life? Exactly, exactly. So it's, uh, but there are lots of French linguists who have, I don't know if it's Christeva. There was a fantastic text on that. So I have to check that, sorry. It's all right, you can come back to me. (laughs) Okay, I will. (laughs) So there's a sense of tactileness in your works, especially your sculptures, which are often soft and make use of comforting and cosy materials. You also use a skin-like fabric, which you call dick skin, which I'm sure by that description alone, viewers can imagine exactly what it looks like. (laughs) In art, we're not allowed to touch and your works invite us to break the rules. Do you ever allow the touching of your artworks? Well, I would say no, but because sometimes the the work you make can be very fragile. And, you know, every time I'm, I'm about to have a show, I always have this a nightmare, like my work is falling apart or it's falling down or something falls. So that's really a big uh, a source of anxiety. But saying that, recently I have worked on a project with another artist, Holly Stevenson, and it's a project is called Handheld. And it's a small box which is divided in 10 compartments. And we've asked artists to do some works which are no bigger than 10 by 10 centimeters to be able to go into the small compartments. Then we hand deliver the box to people uh, from the art world, I don't know, curators or writers or other artists. And then they can touch the work. We were responding to the taboo of touching in first during the pandemic because we couldn't touch anything on anyone. And also the taboo of touch in the art world because usually you can't touch art. But here people can manipulate the pieces. They can curate their own little show in their house. So sometimes we've had some very interesting combination and by some people. So it's always been good. Maybe one day I should do a show where everybody can touch or play with or that would be that could be interesting that and this is something I've been thinking about because I like to touch I like uh, even sometimes I go to some galleries and I can't help but put my little finger on some of the materials or just to have a feel for it I know but everybody does that and I know that so I don't know (laughs) yeah 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 but no I'm I'm careful but you know sometimes yeah there is and also I think sometimes you can even touch the work with your eyes I think sometimes just looking at at something triggers some other senses you know you you will look at something a bit I don't know you will look at velvet or satin or silk and you already have the this kind of softness or or things like that so yeah, I love your little handheld project. That's such a lovely idea. The presentation is beautiful. It comes in this gorgeous box that you kind of open. And like you say, it's got all the compartments. And then is it 10 different artists, did you say? I think there are uh, eight or nine artists. Uh, oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should give the name, but I'm so scared of forgetting one. That... <laughs> <laughs> Let's not put that kind of pressure on you. Um... Yeah, no, I'm just like, hold on. Maybe, maybe I, can, I can just allow so there's me, Holly Stevenson, Anna Perak, Paul Kinderly, Emma Cousin, Melanie Jackson, Kaula 
wavelengths and I think that's it. Yeah, there must be seven or eight. Sorry, I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a lovely idea. And so you hand deliver them? Yeah, we hand delivered. We are we arrived the two of us with a a big smile on our face and like hi we're handheld and uh, and people usually keep them as long as they want and they play with it we just ask them to do a story on instagram and to leave a little message about how they play with the project you know but we've really had lots of pleasure working on it and i think during lockdown it was also a, a very nice thing to be thinking about and playing with yeah, with the taboo of touch, you know, those which were very important at that that time of lockdown. So we'll see. It might the project might evolve. I think the project is going to evolve in a slightly different direction, but it's not over yet. I'll keep you posted. Oh, please do. That's exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how fragile your artworks are, especially because you you know gave me instructions for all of the artworks <laughs> as well. But yeah, I can understand the concern about how fragile they are because they are, they're kind of knotted pieces or hand-stitched works or your shells that are placed into the canvas. That Mm. must be quite terrifying as well. Uh, Yeah, no, I was, you know, because all the pieces I've made for the Chouette Liminal, they were all made this year, you know, they they are all new. And at some point I was struggling technically with the execution of some of the pieces. I was just like, oh my God, what have I done? But after I was just like, okay, just go slowly. I was really like being more and more uh, taking time and step by step, you know, just do this, just cut the canvas today, apply a bit of glue. So it was step by step that I managed to make all that. But some of them, yes, they are are very fragile, which I like as well. You know, I think it's, Sometimes it's as fragile as maybe life. But it's interesting to have resistance as well with materials and being a bit more careful. And uh, it was, I think it's the first time I really had to be very careful and to be much more tender, actually, with the way I was making the work. Yeah, it's true, actually. It was a very interesting learning curve uh, to make those five pieces. Are they all quite new concepts? Oh, but kind of, and I think there's also some new materials, which I had some new fabrics, which I never used before, like velvet, you know, satin, elastic bands, the oyster, because I started playing with oysters. And I'm very interested by oysters. First, I like eating them. I think it's a fantastic uh, piece of nutrition. I don't know if you're, uh, I hope you're not... Uh... <laughs> veggie or I don't know but um do you know what we collect oysters from the beach at the end of our road we collect them fresh clean them open them up and eat them and they are honestly it's amazing I've never had that Mm. kind of freshness where you literally go and collect them and then bring them home and eat them oh my god amazing yeah (laughs) and they're right there at the end of my road lucky you yeah so I do like oysters I'm with you okay when I'm coming next time I'm in um I mean, Margaret. But you know, oysters are very interesting because they change sex during their life. You know, they start as male and after they, most of the time, they turn female. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think at some point, it's the only, it's not an animal, a mollusk, or I don't know, it's the only one which I think they can fertilize themselves at some point because they switch. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I, I'm really, really interested by that. And also, they have a fantastic uh, filter system. 
I don't know if you've seen on YouTube the filtering system of oysters. It's just like on one part of a, of a bucket, you put some oysters and the water is completely filtered. And on the other side, when there's no oyster, the water is muddy and very clean. So they are a very important part of the ecosystem. Uh, yeah, I would encourage people to read more about oysters. <laughs> right. I didn't know that was so interesting. Yeah. Poor little yeah, guys. I yeah, feel yeah, bad yeah. for eating them now. <laughs> But I read recently that some people like who were vegetarians, there was a space for eating them because, I mean, I, I found that a bit difficult to believe, but apparently they don't feel anything, you know, they don't have a nervous system or something like that. So it's okay to eat them, yeah. Oh, really? I don't know. It's a bit weird when you see that they react to like lemon or vinegar. I just found that a bit. Well, next time I see you, we go and eat oysters, okay? Done. <laughs> you can Done. tell me more interesting <laughs> facts about them. <laughs> oui, 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 oui. <laughs> so you've created drawings of women coming, pissing, shitting, breast high and alert, squirting milk or long and flopped, a life of service already given. While these things are often everyday occurrences to women, they are still somehow seen as controversial or taboo topics. Do you find that your work still shock or have viewers become used to your subject matter? For me, I don't find those images or drawings shocking. I just don't find them shocking. I don't know. For me, they are just lived experiences. It's daily life. So maybe one of the la- latest one I, I did, it was for Hetty Judas show for the launch of the book. And I did this character. And uh, she has uh, her child is swinging from a swing, you know, and the swing is made of a hanger and it's hanging from the mom's vagina. So I thought it was a bit, a bit on the edge, but I think it was more dark than shocking. And usually when I create this kind of work, it's through this character and this, this character, she's called Lali. And it's the initials for Like It, Like It. And uh, for me, she's the political character. And... She helps me and uh, she's a conveyor. She helps me to comment on the news sometimes. I don't do it very often, which it's a shame, but yeah, she's always like that. She's kind of naughty. She had like those big tits, like erected big tits. And when she had a dildo in the shape of a Christmas tree and she was taking boys jumps up of the ass and I I I love this story. It's not very well made, but actually it's quite good fun. I started having a few drawings of her, so I love the series of Philip Guston, uh, the Nixon drawings. I don't know if you know them. There was an exhibition at Arthur and Riff uh, a few years ago, and he was commentating on the politics of America at that time, and he drew Nixon as, you know, his cheeks are like balls, you know, like hairy balls and a big nose, so of course you can imagine why I like that. But he had such a knowledge, a way of delivering information through humor and drawings that I really enjoy. They're like cartoons, basically. Actually, I guess Lalise, she's more like a cartoon character. So yes, she's always like delivering the news. Or... I don't know if that answers your questions. But... <laughs> but I don't think my work is particularly shocking. That's, that's just me. I think it's kind of sad, isn't it, that all of those things like I said they're kind of daily occurrences we're not like these serene pristine figures that we're human (laughs) so sometimes I think that 
especially like Hollywood advertising religion women are painted in this certain way where they don't have desire they don't have bodily functions there's no fluid and it's wild that we're in 2023 and some people are still shocked by seeing images like that it's like we've all just been brainwashed into thinking that women are don't have all these things about us yeah there's that but I think sometimes on some social media there's always the the counterbalance of that you know you can find some interesting social accounts but of course they will always try to censor the blood like for example menstrual blood as soon as there is just like wow take that down from Instagram I remember there was this like many years ago actually uh, they took your picture down because there was a girl with a stain of blood on her trousers and um It's crazy, isn't it? I follow quite a few positive birth Instagram accounts where they show images of babies crowning or maybe a mucus plug coming out. These are images that Mm. as women growing up, but also as pregnant women, you just don't see. Like no one shows you what a mucus plug looks like. So once the mucus plug goes and you know that you're going to give birth soon and so you kind of need to know what that's going to look like and it's information it's sharing information and making things a lot less scary because a lot of women will give birth without even knowing what it looks like and so it's really really positive stuff but even they get censored it's this sharing of information which actually is really beneficial to people and even like young girls seeing actual period blood on tampon adverts and rather than this blue colored water or whatever they were using it just makes it normal and a lot less scary and I think that it's just so ridiculous that things like that just get censored even now yeah but I follow as well some birth accounts on Instagram and I remember because before there was absolutely nothing you know the crowning or everything uh and now you see that and you're like you're visually informed now you know if you if you dig a bit sometimes it's that good actually (laughs) because it's quite scary you're like (gasps) no but yeah you you have more information you know but it's amazing yeah 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 no 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 it's amazing and uh and it's true you you gain more information so it's better to gain all this knowledge than uh, being in the dark exactly and then that's the beautiful thing about art is that then you can layer it with doses of humor and poking fun Mm. at our society but also sharing some reality and making people feel less alone. Yeah, there's that as well. I think sometimes when you realize that you're you're not alone and you 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 have shared experience, then that makes the that makes the whole thing quite easier. And I thought motherhood was a bit was a very lonely place, you know. For me, I was just like, what is that? You know, like the playground thing. I was just like, yeah. <laughs> It was very lonely, and uh, I remember once going to the local library because it was singing lessons, <laughs> singing for the very young kids. And I arrived there, and I didn't know the songs because they were all English English songs. <gasps> you know, suddenly there was no, oh my god, I felt so weird. I remember that day, like oh my god, I, I don't fit. <laughs> so you know, I had to learn. I, I learned quite quickly. Oh my god, another song. <laughs> and uh yeah no no so yeah it's just uh you have to find like-minded people so while we're talking about your drawings your works on paper I found another brilliant quote from you yeah about your work breeder 
And you said, in Breeder, my character Lally is flanked by two children who happily shit and piss all over while she seems frozen in a state of tension and rigidity. This acrylic painting deals with the idea of motherhood and explores the emotional exhaustion and daily challenges that come with being a mother. It offers an opposition to the sanitised Western iconography of the Virgin Madonna and Child. The black title written above the mum seems to resonate. Is it an insult being shouted out at her or a moment of realisation in her social role of reproduction? As we were talking about, your drawings do come from a place of humour, which we can all relate to and laugh at this ridiculous reflection of ourselves. But they also raise serious questions about our mental health, our capabilities for coping and the helplessness of motherhood. And I wondered whether these works were based on your personal experience or were they sourced from elsewhere? So like friends or overheard conversations, that kind of thing. So it's a bit of everything, um, because... I remember for the breeder thing, there was a guy when I was at Goldsmith, uh, another student slash artist. It was very cheeky and he looked at me and said, oh, you're, you're just a breeder. Oh my God. And he really stopped me in my track, you know, because I thought it was very funny. And and at the same time, uh, I was just like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm a breeder, yeah. And he stayed with me, but what is good is just like several later, I've been able to use that and make a painting out of it. And that was it, you know, and... Um, I just wanted to play with that. I mean, me, I only have one child, you know, now she's she's a teenager. But I know lots of women, women artists, or who have like two or three children. And I'm always so full of admiration for them because the way they handle things. I mean, I have the impression that the more children you are, the more capable they are. Even in the art world, this kind of sense of organization, dealing with many things. I have a lot of respect for them. You know, and multitasking. Uh, I mean, that's that word makes me laugh, multitasking, because I just say it's just multi-asking. You know, you don't you don't multitask. You are multi-asked to do many many different things, and uh, and that's it. So, um, I mean, I was quite moany about, especially the first few years, the younger years. I think we all like different stages with our children. Me, I knew I would like teenagehood. I love teenagers. I think they are fascinating and amazing. When they are a bit more, they're a bit younger, I'm, I'm not very playful. So I was a bit like, oof, it wasn't so easy. But, and when I was moaning, you had the impression I had six children. In fact, I had just one, but I was just like, yeah, I have to do this, I for Breeder, I thought it was funny to show this woman. Um, and it's funny because I did that for a Kupfer project and uh, Penelope, she has three kids, you know, and they are like around, I don't know, four or five until maybe 10 to 11. So it's quite intense years and you can see them at the private views and stuff like that. It's yeah. interesting to see how she handles and also lots of my friends uh, doing all that, yeah. I think it's really interesting that you spoke about people having like a preferred age with children. It's something that a lot of people don't really speak about, but there's so many different stages in a child's life and you're not going to enjoy all of them. The newborn stage is so hard because you have no idea what you're doing and no idea what they want and they can't communicate it to you and you're still figuring things out. But then 
my son is 18 months and I just felt like by now I would know what I was doing but I still don't know what I'm doing (laughs) because it's constantly changing nobody knows uh, nobody knows it's a constant learning process and and you you have to adapt and sometimes there's something which has worked fantastically well one day and you try to replicate it like a week later and it's a complete disaster so you know you have to be pretty flexible and I think the best way is to know your child as best as you can with the signs of tiredness, hunger, uh, if they become a bit shy on the playground to help them make a bridge with other people or the children. So it's all about, I mean, for me, raising a child is about coaching. It's nothing else. It's being a coach. And they raise you as well. They raise you as parents, you know. It's not a one-way thing. It's just both ways. I mean, she's taught me a lot, my daughter. She still does, huh? which is good. Yeah, I guess like once they turn into a teenager, then that's when they start teaching you. Yeah, they keep you updated. Yeah, yeah and that's also true. <laughs> At the moment, she keeps me updated on many things, you know, <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> so you got your finger on the yeah. pulse. Exactly, exactly. I know all about grind music and uh, latest clothes trends and stuff Amazing. Like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're useful, those little things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a real playfulness to your work, both in the work itself and also in the titles. I get the sense that you're also quite playful in the studio, piecing together materials in quite a free way. Is this the case? And do you often have a work in mind before making it? Or do you leave a lot to chance and serendipity? I don't know. I never know how to really describe my my creative process. I I just play. I think my first, uh, I play with material. I think as adults, we lose this capacity at playing without judgment. You know, children, they play, they put things together. They are not self-conscious when you start, especially as artists, you start like questioning every gesture, every assemblage. But I try to play. And even sometimes, how the the way... uh, things fall on the floor for example it can give you an answer I don't say that I always work like that but sometimes if something catch my eye I will take a photograph or leave it like that you know and or sometimes I will discard something and find them like maybe a week later I'm like oh actually that's not too bad and I've tried with ceramics for example to come with a very precise idea to make things and it was a complete disaster every time I was just like I'm going to make that and it wasn't working so I don't know if it's lack of skill or so and in the end after one of the teachers said to me just do small things and then after you assemble them and see what works and then I I was able to make things but for me it was a very complicated uh, medium and um, well I still play with it sometimes but and for me also, the way I work, I like uh, to use contrast, you know, contrast of material or something which looks quite, it's between push and pull, you know, you pull somebody, but after you push it back. So, uh, for example, in one of the or in one of the pieces, you have this fake fur, like fake lamp fur, but at the same time, in the middle of it, you have those clothes, you know, it's like, oh, it looks soft, but no, it's not soft because there is this kind of very defense mechanism. And you always associate a lamb with being so sweet and tender. Uh, And suddenly you find those clothes right in the middle. So it kind of derails the material and and so on. But sometimes you find ideas. uh, Sometimes you're like, oh, why do I start using that? Yeah, it's really weird. But I go in lots of shops, you know, like 
pound shops or um, tiger, you know, those kind of cheap shops or anytime I see a, a fabric shop as well, I go in because you never know what you can find. And I touch the materials to see how, I mean, it's quite essential with the essential maybe for the work I make. And also, yeah, anything, even going to, I love going to DIY shops. I think it's like poem to me and like all those screws and I love all that. So it needs to fit, to fit the, the brain. Yeah. Amazing. So your inspiration comes from truly all over DIY shops, tiger fabric shops so it's such yeah. an interesting mix but like you say they're real contrasting you've got this kind of balance of plush yeah. soft sensual stuff with like hard metal yeah like the claws yeah. the claws are lovely yeah 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 that's why uh, there's a good thing as well it's uh, aliexpress you know alibaba express you sometimes you see things and they give you ideas you know it's a good uh, thing to check what's available you you type just one word and you you see what comes up with and you're like oh really I hadn't thought about that and uh, it's quite interesting yeah you have to be inventive with your choice of words like mm. <laughs> but sometimes uh, actually one of the material I used uh, liquid internship I found it on Alibaba and, and it's such an an amazing material you know it's oh, really? it's really weird yeah 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 it's so weird that I can't find it anymore which <laughs> saddens me. I don't know. No. I try... Yes, I'm very, very careful with this material because I'm like, oh my God, I hope I'm going to find it again. I don't know. I can't find the, the fabricator anymore. So, But you know, things like that, if I hadn't been on the internet, I wouldn't have found it. So, Is that the kind of translucent yeah. material that you've stretched over it? Yes. And I thought it looked really like the amniotic sac, you know, the, the sac for surrounding the baby. So the same translucent material. And I, I try to avoid using latex. You know, I don't know why, uh, especially as a fabric, as a, as a material, uh, I always try to avoid it. And I'm glad I found this material. I thought it was very interesting. And, uh, voilà. <laughs> That'd be very precious material. Like, are you ever nervous about using those kinds of material? Are you quite precious? But yes, that's why uh, suddenly I'm like, wow, because I can't find it anymore. And uh, and I ordered one which sounds similar, but in fact, it's like a kind of latex. So um, on a regular basis, I go back and see if they have some, you know. Because first, it's interesting to play with. And second, it's just if there's a problem, it's always good to have some spare material, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, it's such a sad story. Yeah. I hope you find it. No, I'm sure. You know, I check regularly. We need to launch some kind of manhunt for this material. <laughs> we'll find it. You have an exclusive piece. Yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> I think some of the first artwork that I saw of yours were your totem-like thingies, which stand tall, proud and phallus-like. They have objects hanging off of them, like organs, flowers or genitalia. They're completely abstracted, but with some kind of recognisable figure, which is both comforting, jarring, awkward and delicious. Since then, your practice seems to have reduced in size, maybe because of COVID, but with more intimate moments. Was this on purpose and will you return to your large scale installations? The reduction in size, I think it was more due to COVID because suddenly... uh... 
spending time in the flat. My studio was closed, so I couldn't get there for a while. And I found myself drawing a lot during COVID. I was doing lots of watercolor, also drawings, or a bit of painting. But they were much, much uh, smaller in size. So yes, when I was, sometimes I was on my kitchen table, uh, I was doing some watercolor, like five by eight centimeters. But saying that after, as soon as I got in the studio, I did some big drawings who were like 150 by... Uh, 150 centimeters by 240. So suddenly it went like massive. And it was, I remember being so liberated in the gesture. I was just like, oh my God, I can breathe again. I haven't made any other big drawings recently. I don't know why. But with Fingy, for example, all the, there, it's a series of nine sculptures. So they are all like human size, you know, they are not like big, big, you know, it's like you can really have a conversation with all those characters, you know. But as the number, they are, they are nine, so they occupy quite a lot of space, you know, when they are together. And uh, so that, that gives an impression of, of bigger size. And also I wanted them to have like different personalities. My rule was not to use the same material twice on all of them. So there are lots of different materials but they are never repeated. I don't think that, no, 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 no. I'm, I was too sure of that. But for the show at Liminal, uh, I've done some, it's smaller in size, but when you, when you look at it, it's still human size. They are quite, it's not overpowering. It's not overbearing. And, uh, well, last year when I did the show at the Fidro Via Gallery, they were medium size as well. It was a mix of small and medium and, and big. I think it fluctuates according to what I, I want to do. Was the Fitzrovia Gallery show, was that a residency? But I started as a residency on India and it ended up as a show, you know, because I got proposed the space quite quickly. You know, it was from the week to the next. So I was just like, okay, what am I doing? And I was playing with the, with the space. And after I decided to bring some of the work I had been doing a bit over the lockdown and assemble it. Yeah, I wanted to experiment because I was playing with some new materials, like, for example, the clothes. So there was that. There was a bit more, it was a bit more aggressive, I think. I started using that. And the clothes, um, I started using them, actually, because my daughter, when she went to a gig, and there was a guy who went behind her and he started touching her body. And when she was saying that to me, I remember I was drawing on the table and I started drawing clouds, you know, and I was so angry, you know, so it stayed. And since then, this is an addition of a new material, of a new signifier of like aggression, my aggression toward this guy, because I really wanted to rip him apart, but also to protection towards my daughter. So sometimes all those live experiences, they inform my practice and the sculptures I make and all the drawings as well. You know. God, that is so horrible. I can't imagine I would want to rip his head off. No, no, it's infuriating, you know, it's that some guys think that the women's body is at their disposal, you know, like whatever it's touching, uh, feeling, uh, raping, murdering, uh, we see too much of that. That makes me so angry. It's just like, what is that? I don't know. It's they're savages, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely consent is such an important thing and for people to for men to not see that yeah, yeah and especially yeah as a mother I mean that must just be so gut-wrenching to experience yeah no it's it's 
And when you read things in the Met Police, you're like, what the fuck is going on there? You know, no wonder that women are not protected. I think male sexuality is always protected, no matter what. So this is the consequences in our society. Because their sexuality is protected, then women will always be unsafe. You can't go to the police and, and go to complain because it will be dismissed. And it's the same in every country. You go to France, you go to England, it's the same shit. So that's enough, you know. It's horrible, isn't it? That like just one woman's voice against one man will never be listened to. But if there's like multiple, then it might be listened to. Only if it gets to a point where it gets very extreme. Yeah. That's how all these people like men in powers of position have got away with it for so long because if there's one person complaining they're just like oh he's just a man yeah, yeah, yeah. men have desires and oh what a lad yeah yeah yeah. no but it's awful it's awful I mean it's still it still carries on you know they, some of them they are judged at the supreme court in America hello you know so voila I've raised my point <laughs> it's a very valid point yeah 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 so your work questions how and why we define ourselves by our genitals our patriarchal society puts so much emphasis on the notion of gender however your practice takes these notions to create a jumble of genitalia rendered genderless often detaching themselves entirely from their host to stand alone in the world do you see your creations as the victims of society or victorious in their new androgynous state well, maybe I guess they are a bit of both, you know, because I'm more focused on the penis, you know. I mean, my goal with my goal is to deflate the phallus. That uh, that's a joke, but I, I like to <laughs> my goal is to deflate the phallus. I think I'm going to make a slogan out of it. And, I love it. Uh, I think there is a very uh, careful uh, regulation of the penis online which is uh, through pornography, which is always like very big and very erected. And yes, it becomes this kind of uh, creature on its own, which is completely disembodied, you know, and it's just a, a functioning uh, sex tool floating on the screen, basically, you know. So I guess uh, it's not the best, uh, the best thing either, you know. And, uh, it's like they are detached from their owner. And um, I mean... Uh, because, yeah, in pornography, you don't really see the face of the guy, you know, you see his dick. When for women, you see, you will see the vagina, but you will also see the face because she's either showing like, enjoying it or suffering from it, you know, either. So um, it's, women have a more of a presence on it. And mm. uh, when I, for example, when I, in my work, I have those shapes, you know, and I say they're my shapes, but uh, they're quite anamorphic, but it's true, they mix both genders, and you don't really know if it's, if they are balls or breasts, and in the middle, there is this penile shape as well, so it's all a jumble of, uh, of all that, but uh, I think we are very limited in our Western societies with just both genders, you know, because when you go into some tribe on some other cultures, there are more than two genders, you know, you go, for example, in India, you have the Ijra, you know, there's a third, uh, there's also the third gender law there, there's also um, in the Samoa Islands, there are four genders, they have... Um, male, female, and uh, two, uh, three gender. One is called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like 
Farah Fafin and Farah Fatama or something like that. And also with uh, Native American, I think they recognize five distinct genders as well. There's the male, female, transgender, two-spirit female and two-spirit male. So, you know, there is a variety. And I think the more options you have, the better it is, you know. I mean, you can, uh, sometimes you will feel maybe a bit more masculine or some days a, a bit more feminine. And um, it's in Polynesia as well. I think they have this thing called Mahu. And sometimes when they see that a little boy becomes like present some more like female traits or things like that they raise him as a as a mahu you know and uh and it it evolves like that and i think that's quite beautiful this um this openness mm. that we are not allowed to to have here you know it's just such uh, everything is debated and uh and yeah. seen as a threat yeah, it's seen as a threat? threat i think it's an openness you know and Sometimes when I see those debates on on transgender and I'm like, really, does it really bother you? Why, do, why does yeah. it really bother you? What's really, if you really think about that, it's just like, no. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't really specialize. It's not specialized, but I like to have those information. I think they are quite important to have and to be diffused in our society. It's wild, isn't it, that we're confined to just these two genders? Yeah. And that's it. When, like you say, it's all around the world, there's multiple genders. It's kind of, it's not a new concept. This is exactly an old, old concept. It's super old. So why do, we, why do we want to change that? You know, it's all that mm. due to religion and colonization. You know, it's just like shit. And it's also beautiful, like, to respond to your child's own needs like we were saying earlier you see that your child is presenting more female or more masculine traits and you raise them according to it yeah this whole thing of girls wearing pink and boys wearing blue and girls playing with dolls and boys playing with cars and it's just so outdated and so ridiculous I think just let kids be kids and don't put all of these stupid societal rules on them and let them play yeah, because, and enjoy themselves and grow up knowing who they are. Even sometimes as parents, there are some parents who are very, very supportive of their children. But as soon as they, they leave the family cell, you know, there's the outside, there's school. The problem, it triggers at school. I mean, it's just awful. There was this French documentary. I don't remember the title. And there's this little boy who, who wanted to be a girl, you know, and you see the, the parents going through the process, the the mom and dad being very supportive, but at school, poor, poor thing, you know. I don't remember the, the title of it. It's I think it was released like three or four years ago. He's wearing a kind of butterfly. I remember the, the poster. And uh, it's a beautiful, very sensitive film, you know, and very well filmed. Not too intrusive. And uh, I don't know. I think that's why art is so important, because it raises questions like this, you know, that yeah. you're making it raises these questions and I think Mm. that we always have to be questioning the society the culture that we live in because things are constantly evolving constantly changing and we have to be open to these changes and not I don't know be so nostalgic for our past that it blindsides us yeah I think people they like it's difficult to leave a position of privilege you know I think Mm. it's Oh, but it's just like, no, that's just, you know, 
you have to experience the uncomfort of it all in order to evolve. And uh, and we've all been there, you know. We are white women, so we are privileged. But it's uh, I don't know. There is space. I think. I don't know, I always have this kind of analogy. Sometimes you're on the bus and you're very comfortable on the bus. You're like, mm, I'm going home, I'm tired. And you see somebody like, I don't know, like an older person or somebody with kids and you're like, I have to leave my my place. You know, that's how it is. You have to leave your place to somebody who needs to have this um, this rest. That's a good analogy. Leave my space, like leave my space in the bus whenever. No, whenever I see somebody or, yeah, all the time, so... But I like this analogy, yes. Great analogy. Of uh, privilege and voila. Because maybe one day somebody will help you. You know, I think it's all a question of of helping and supporting each other and learn from each other. Yeah, mm. and being open to other people's experiences, seeing the world exactly. from their eyes. Mm. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, you often work with fabric and stitching, which used to be women's work to keep her quiet and entertained as she whiled away at home, something which your work definitely doesn't do. In fact, your works have a lot to say for themselves. If you could communicate one last impression on your viewers, what would that be? I want that on my walls, <laughs> in my house, in my bed. <laughs> um, sometimes it's an impression of, I like cringe, I like cringy humor, you know, and I think mm. British are quite good with that. It's funny, but at the same time, it, it touches you like where it hurts. And, mm. uh, and I like that. So I guess maybe uh, this is the kind of thing people will, I would like people to, to guess. Like, oh, it's funny, but it's also a bit painful. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, but for, for talking about women and, you know, being... Uh, using those kind of material or stitching. I don't really know if it answers your question, but I always have the impression that women's skills and knowledge have always been um, stolen from them, you know? Like witches, for example. We've heard a lot about witches and the rehabilitation of witches, but in fact, witches, they were, they were very independent women, you know? They were living for themselves. They had knowledge of plants, you know? They were like some doctors. They were also helping other women to, to give birth. In French, okay. when you talk about midwife, you know, we call them uh, sage femme, which the translation in English would be wise women, you mm. know. So I like uh, I like that that wise woman is somebody who has knowledge and understanding and, and things like that. Things like that. And recently, I don't know, it's all those things which were supposed to be like seen, regarded as female or feminine, but like cooking, for example, uh, Oh, she's in the kitchen cooking, but all the big chefs until really recently, they were all male, you know. They all learned from their grandmother or their mother. And after up, they take all the knowledge, the skills in their own kitchen. And they have like four stars restaurant, etc. And but now it's changing, you know, we see more and more women chefs. So it's good. And recently, I also I was reading uh, an article on uh, the luxury business luxury fashion business for women and there is apparently there's an explosion of sales etc etc and they've realized that because they were putting female designer in fashion houses but women were buying more clothes because it was made by women for women i was just like hey hey you know of course it makes sense of course you don't want to find yourself corseted with uh, a very 
difficult piece of garment, which is difficult to wear or things like that. So they've realized that by putting women in charge, then you have more sales. So <laughs> hello. So well for them for the penny to drop, but I'm like, wow. Again, you know, it's this kind of thing, you know, like in France, in France, when you go into the workshops, you know, in haute couture, they are called les petites mains, the little hands, and there were lots of women. I think now it's changing again, but the little hands were the women who were doing all the patterns and all this amazing needlework of sewing, etc. So it's reverse. It's payback time now, you know, hopefully. I was just thinking as you were talking, how many women designers are there that design men's clothing? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. Oh, I was trying to think. I was thinking. I can think of loads of male designers yeah, yeah, yeah. Design women's clothing. Yeah, but you're the way around. There, the opposite way around. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe if we if we dig a bit, we might find. I think there was one uh, in Celine or Celine or something like that. Or um, mm. I mean, you don't really hear about them. That's the thing. No, you really don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you enjoy most about your practice? Being in my studio and listening to a playlist made by my daughter. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Uh, studio visit as well. I like having people in my studio because I like having people in the studio because it's always nice conversation. And I assume that people are interested in the work so we can exchange. And I think uh, an artist studio is a very intimate space. So it's like really entering mm-hmm. an artist intimacy. But with the nature of my work, I have a lot of very personal conversations. So it's always quite a very rich uh, exchange. And sometimes it's a bit of a confessional as well. You know, it can be quite emotional with some people. Uh, I've heard a lot of of stories and traumas. So but it's always a very, very special moment. And I like that. Otherwise, it's just in my practice, it's always the very exciting uh, beginning of the new idea, you know, like you have this idea and it's so exciting because it's just the big idea, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm going to use that. I'm thinking about that. And it's so full of possibilities and it's extremely exciting. And that is my favorite moment in my practice. And what's the most frustrating thing about your practice? Well, I think it's like a lot of other artists is the the size of the studio and the lack of funds. I wish I had a much bigger studio and I had more money, but I think all artists are like that. So I'm pretty average in my uh, frustration in my <laughs> practice. <laughs> and dealing, dealing with the art world sometimes, which can be extremely uh, excruciating, but you know. <laughs> which part of the art world do you find particularly excruciating i don't know you know it's just like sometimes when people um, ignore you or you talk to them and they, they look above your shoulder i found that a bit like okay a bit uncomfortable mm. but anyway i think my, my favorite thing is being on one-to-one so i think that's why i guess i like my studio visits because I like one-to-one. It's my favorite way of communicating and interaction. So I will always favor the one-to-one. So can you tell me more about your works in the group exhibition at Liminal Gallery? Yeah. Alors, uh, I've done like five pieces and they're all new. I made them especially for the show. And uh, actually, I I was surprised to be invited for a a theme of tenderness that took me by surprise you know oh really 
hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like me, thunder. And uh, <laughs> I was just like, okay, I will rise to the challenge. But mm. I, did, I did some drawings which were actually quite tender and uh, quite gentle and also a bit sad. So I guess I have, I can, I can do something like that. And, and I decided to explore the theme uh, through the touch and if possible, the tender touch and the different stages of touch that we experience through life. That's the way I observe them. So it's very personal and it's very subjective, but uh, maybe I'm, I'm wrong for some of them and hopefully I am, I don't know. And the first piece for the show is, uh, is called Liquid Internship. And this is where uh, it's during the utero uh, life, you know, uh, in utero life. And it's because we are surrounded by the amniotic fluid. So we are always touched by liquidity. So I propose this piece of uh, translucent uh, material, which is stretched over an oval uh, canvas. And it looks like the, yeah, the amniotic sac. And I painted an oyster a bit pink with a little bit of red dot because I like to put a red dot everywhere. And it's vaguely uh, reminiscent of the, of the fetus. So this is the liquid touch of the, the mother wave as well. And then there's the second piece, which is called Good or Bad, You Choose. And here it's, uh, I play with the Melanie Klein concept of good and bad breasts. They are uh, 3D pieces made of soft sculptures. So the viewer can choose the side of the breast he wants to have. So if it's the good breast, it's welcoming and comforting and it's made of satin and skin-like materials. And uh, we were ready to suckle nipple. And the, the other size is a bit more defensive and cold and reluctant to the feeding, basically. And it's made with metal clothes, which impeach the, the nourishment. And uh, the good and bad breast for Melanie Klein is when she realized that the baby realized that the mom is not always available for him or her, you know, like sometimes, yes, she will breastfeed, but some of the time she's busy doing something else. So the breast won't be available. So it discovered that there's the good and bad mom. And it's also after the whole thing about schizophrenia, etc. And I've scaled the boobs like uh, at human scale, like when the, the baby faces the breast of his mom. So they are slightly enlarged. It is suspended at uh, at mouth level, so uh, so it should be quite fun, to quite playful, and uh, and the suspension is also made with an an attachment uh, sliding piece, which is similar to the one which are used in bras to adjust the length for the shoulder strap or things like that. So hopefully people can will be able to to play with that. The third piece is hum and here. In this title, I'd inverted the, the I and the E of him and her. And it's this piece progresses towards the sexual and intimate touch and hopefully um, sexual tenderness. I mean, you don't always have to be tender during sex or things like that, but uh, you choose again. It's a collage of watercolor canvas on the skin-like material, which I call also a dick skin. And there are some red glossy uh, vinyl uh, cutouts and suggesting uh, nipples or the mitus erythrea, you know, the, the thing on the, <laughs> on the knob. Uh, so, I mean, those anamorphic shapes, they, they mix both gender. And uh, so we can guess like some kind of elongated breast or testicles. And there's a kind of penile shape in the middle. And um, I mean, it's like a, a sexual act somehow. 
Well, I also play with the, uh, the idea of circlusion, you know, and you don't know who is in, who is out, and who penetrates who and how. So it's, mm. it's kind of a playful uh, and very tactile piece. The last piece is called Over and Done and Do It Again, and it alludes to, to death. It's quite a dark piece. Uh, there is, uh, we find a girl, the oval shape that we find with a liquid internship, the mother, the in utero piece. So here I play with the contrast of the surface of the, the painting I've used. So the, the background is a matte, it's very matte, it's made with gouache. It's a very dark, intense black. And in the middle, I stuck an oyster, which I painted black. And it's very glossy. It's extremely shiny. So there is this, this contrast. And in the oyster, I've put a little piece of pink salt and it gives a kind of um, of color inside all this darkness. And the salt is a little bit glittery, so it gives a bit of hope and light with this very dark piece. And um, and also the the color pink is always a threat for my work. So I guess with all the pieces I made, there's always a bit of pink. So I thought it was nice to to finish with that. That's about death. So it's a bit dark, but um, that's life, and that's it really. It's like touching life and being touched by life. And uh, and that's it, really. It's like the full spectrum of life, isn't it? And it just takes you yeah. on this journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been well cared for. It's it's a kind of an optimistic tenderness, you know, because not everybody that's has true. been well cared during their childhood. There's also all that. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well I'm glad that I invoked some positivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. A good uh, time to reflect for me. With, uh, yeah, I was surprised to be asked, but it's been a good, uh, very good thing. It was the right timing for me to think about it. Yeah, it's been good. Amazing. Yeah. I'm glad to hear. I'm actually surprised that you were surprised because <laughs> I do see a lot of tenderness in your works. You know, there's a lot of like joking and fun and humor. Yeah. and But I do think there's a, quite a lot of tenderness in your works. Yeah, 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 no, I think you're right. There's also a bit of sadness. If you really look closer, Mm. like in some sculptures, there's this kind of, um, you know, there's always something holding together. Like I used to use those pregnancy belts or there's also, there's always one sculpture which is a bit isolated in in one corner. So I guess there is all that, but sometimes it's just people say, oh yeah, your work is funny or... It's mm. very, you use lots of genitals, so you start, you start believing in mm. <laughs> what people think, how they see your work, but yeah, no, I guess there's more to that. Well, that's all my questions. So Ingrid Berth and Moyne, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you, Louise, and uh and I invite everybody to come for a day in Margate and visit the gallery. Try a Little Tenderness is a fifth show in Liminal Gallery's new home at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. The exhibition continues until the 23rd of February and will open Thursdays 11 till 4pm, Saturdays 11 till 3pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website liminal-gallery.com. 
Thank you so much for listening to Liminal Gallery Podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Flora Bradwell, who is also part of our group exhibition entitled Try a Little Tenderness. Bye for now. Bye.